in that. And I pray that uh, God will continue to um, mature you in Jesus Christ as we walk through the word of God together. This morning we find ourselves in 1 Timothy, so please uh, keep your Bibles open to that book as we uh, work through what are called the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles, which are uh, three letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, letters that Paul wrote to individual ministers who were taking on the baton of ministry. As we dive into 1 Timothy this morning, I want to begin with a question. What is essential? What is essential to be a thriving church? What are the essential things that a church needs to be thriving? You know, it's a great question as we find ourselves as a uh, relatively new church plant. What are the things we should do that this church would thrive? Now, a lot of uh, church wisdom, church growth wisdom, I say that in quotations today, would be things like, you need to have good parking. Okay, I'm glad we have pretty good parking here. You need to have a nice building. Maybe you need to have the right kind of music. You need a, you need a band or you need an orchestra. Or you know, there's some churches with 15 different styles of music and you can choose the style of music you want. Are those kinds of things essential for a thriving church? Uh, do we need fog and smoke machines and lights? Uh, so we can really manipulate our, our feelings and we'll, we'll sway more during work. Is that essential for, thri- for thriving, to be a thriving church? Do we need subwoofers so you can, you know, you can feel the bass? Do we need entertainment? Do, do you need a, a pastor who sidelines as a comedian, right? What, what do you need? And so and if you look at the church today, there's all this kind of faux wisdom, given on what a church needs if it's really going to be thriving. And indeed, you can make a kind of thriving church. You can grow a huge church, oftentimes with these things. But it's not thriving according to God's definition. So what is it that a church needs to thrive as a biblical Church, what has God in his word told us that we need to be a thriving church? And that's whether you're a church in Indonesia or Sweden or America or Africa or Norway, what does a biblical church need, whatever part of the globe we're in, to be a thriving church? And we find that here in 1 Timothy To summarize 1 Timothy, this letter is about the ministers and the congregation's duty in the household of God. What is the minister's duty and what are the church members' duty in the household of God? Timothy, or sorry, Paul is writing to Timothy, who is apparently a, the minister in Ephesus. And we'll look, we'll look at this more closely in a moment. But Timothy is in Ephesus as the pastor of this church. And Paul's writing to Timothy. Paul knows that his days are numbered. Paul knows that he is going to be most likely killed for the faith. He's going to be a martyr. And now Paul is 
passing on this baton to the next generation of men that he's been training, like Timothy. And now Timothy is in Ephesus, and Paul writes to Timothy as a spiritual father, as a spiritual father to a spiritual son. And Paul's message and exhortation to Timothy as the minister is that it is your essential duty to guard the gospel and godliness. Guard the gospel and godliness. And so Paul's message to Timothy is what Timothy himself needs to do to guard the gospel and set an example of godliness, but also what he is to charge the church to do to maintain godliness in the household of God that is the church. So if there's only two things you take away this morning, it's our duty together, uh, principally as a minister, but as the congregation as a whole, to guard the gospel and godliness. Gospel and godliness. And we'll look at 1 Timothy with those two ideas in mind. First the gospel, then godliness. But before we get into the text, I want you to look at your worship folder in page 4 where I've given you a brief outline of the, of the book. Um, if, you wanna, if you're someone who likes to draw, you can draw two mountain peaks like this, just two mountain peaks. You've got three valleys and two peaks. And the way that Paul has organized, and I'll show you here in the worship folder, the way Paul has organized his thoughts is it's instructions to Timothy, instructions to the church, Instructions to Timothy, instructions to the church, instructions to Timothy. So you have this A, B, A, B, A kind of structure. And so now look at your worship folder. And where you see point one, point three, and point five are instructions for Timothy. And in each of those sections, Paul begins with dealing with false teaching and then goes on to give instructions to Timothy relating to the gospel and godliness. So in each of these sections, Paul deals with Timothy. First, you need to confront false teaching and false teachers, and then uh, he talks about godliness. And then if you look at points two and four, we can call those the mountain peaks, we see instructions for the church. So it's a really uh, a neat and I would say very intentional structure we find in 1 Timothy to organize his thoughts. But the big theme that holds all of it together is the gospel and godliness. What does Timothy need to do as the minister to lead in that and protecting the gospel and setting an example of godliness? And then what is expected of the church in the maintaining of those things as well? So let's, let's dive in. We're just going to have two points this morning. Two points to cover 1 Timothy, and the first is, we are, to be a thriving church, we must guard the gospel. To be a thriving church, number one, we must guard the gospel. So let's dive into the text. In this section, we're going to look at those three valleys where Timothy is, so the three parts of 1 Timothy where Paul addresses Timothy. So beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, we see that Paul is handing off the ministry and is writing to Timothy in verse 2, who he calls 
his true child in the faith. Verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. So Paul viewed Timothy as his own son to raise him up for the ministry in the faith. He is his spiritual son. And we see then in verse 3, he's charged to guard the gospel, where he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The stewardship from God that is by faith is the gospel. That's another way of talking about the gospel. Remember in Ephesus, when we were in Ephesians, Paul talked about God entrusted him and revealed to him a plan for the fullness of time. That was the word economy, oikonomia. This is the same idea here. It's God's economy, which is the gospel, the good news, how God is going to save his people and bring his people, his church, into the new creation. This is the stewardship or the trust that is given by faith. But the problem is, is that false teachers are going to constantly undermine the gospel. And we see this in every age. You don't have to be much of a student of church history to know that in every age, false teachers have risen up to undermine the gospel, to twist and pervert it. And there is no exception here in Ephesus. Indeed, remember in Acts 20, when Paul gives his farewell message to the Ephesian elders, Acts 20, he tells the elders there that be alert because wolves are going to come and even from your own, even from within the church, even from perhaps even within the elder board as he's speaking to the elders, wolves will come in from among yourselves, Paul says, to devour the flock. And so Paul begins with, the, with dealing with the most significant threat to a church, and that is the infiltration from without or within of false doctrine. And so Paul says in verse 3, Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine, in order to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. In verse 6, Paul describes these false teachers, and I think that these attributes of false teachers here are pretty much the same in every age. Look at verse 6. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. We see here some very common uh, 
attributes of false teachers. I think sometimes we'd like to know more specifically what was the false teaching. You know, when we, when we read about false teaching in the New Testament, what was the false teaching? We're not always given the specifics or as much of it. We are not always given as much clarity as we'd like. But there are some commonalities with all false teachers. And notice what we've seen here. Like in verse 4, speculation. In verse 6, vain discussion. Verse 7, these are men who desire to be teachers, but they don't have understanding, and yet they make confident assertions. Sometimes the men who speak the most boldly and the most black and white are actually the men that understand the issue the least. And there are men who cause disruption and division in the body of Christ, placing themselves higher than they ought to, breaking Paul's command in Romans 12, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And we're going to see more of this issue as we work through 1 Timothy Paul reminds him of the purpose of the law in verse 8 and that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. But there will be many throughout the church age that will try to use the law of Moses, particularly the law of Moses, and twist it. Some will say you need to keep following the Mosaic diet. Some will will say things like, you need to keep following the law. We saw in Galatians this was an issue. You needed to keep following its faith in Jesus plus the Mosaic law. And here again, um, false teachers are causing trouble in Ephesus because they are deceiving weak church members and placing a yoke on them that God has already removed in Jesus Christ. We see Paul lay this charge to guard the gospel um, to Timothy in verse 18. Look there at verse 18 with me. Paul talks about this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul, in the previous verses, verses 12 to 17, talks about his own example. He was once a persecutor and an insolent opponent of the church, but God in his mercy saved him. That's where the saying that we use for the assurance of pardon came about this morning. Verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And Paul talks about how he received mercy, how he was given this stewardship and this trust as an example to those who were to believe in Jesus for eternal life. And now this charge he's handing over to Timothy. And again, at the end of the section, some have rejected this. He names two men, 
Hymenaeus and Alexander who have rejected the sound gospel and made shipwreck of their faith. Notice that Paul names names when he has to. Isn't that a no-no in our culture, to name names? But Paul names names. Hymenaeus and Alexander, he is handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. I would uh, argue that this is probably uh, another way of talking about church discipline. Because we see in 1 Corinthians 5, hand the immoral brother over uh, to, to Satan. Uh, so probably these men were disciplined, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have made shipwreck of their faith and caused untold damage in the church. So in light of this, Paul is charging Timothy. Timothy, my child, I entrust this to you. Paul, or Timothy, in, in other words, is a trustee. Just like you have trustees of an organization, and trustees are there to protect the interests and the f- oversee the flourishing of the organization. This trust that was given to Paul is now given to Timothy, that he might wage the good warfare. In guarding the gospel, we also see that we see it for what it is. It's warfare. 18. Second half of the verse, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. Paul shows us here that church ministry is not always peaceful. The old church theologians called the church on earth the church militant, meaning that it's the church that's embattled. It's a church that's in battle. Paul told the church in Corinth, there must be factions among you in order to show those who are genuine. So we see in various places in the New Testament that the church will be embattled and that it's the duty of gospel ministers to wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. That's the gospel and again, godliness, the way that we live. We see this theme pick up again then in the, uh, the third uh, section of the outline of 1 Timothy, but where we, where we pick up Timothy's instructions again. Look at chapter 4 with me. Turn to chapter 4. Again, the, the, this section, the second part addressed to Timothy. Paul begins with false teaching once again. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. You know, we we sang Psalm 91 this morning for our Psalm of Assurance. And if, you, uh, and if you're a familiar reader of the Gospels, you will know that the devil cited Psalm 91 to Jesus in the wilderness to tempt Jesus. Remember the Gospels were told that, that the devil took Jesus onto the top of the temple and said, why don't you cast yourself off? 
and the devil quotes Psalm 91. Doesn't it say that the angels will protect you, will keep you, will, will not even let your foot strike a stone? Satan's telling Jesus, why don't you go ahead and do that? Show your glory. And if you do, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this earth. We would like to think that false teaching is the kind of thing where it, you just have it on a t-shirt. So if a false teacher is there, his t-shirt teacher, says false teacher, right? We would like to think of the false teacher as the one who just simply says, don't believe in Jesus. But the devil is not an idiot. He's far more cunning. And we even see in the devil's temptation of Jesus, what the devil did was twist scripture. The devil's too smart within the church, within spiritual people, to openly just reject the gospel. It does happen sometimes, but within the church, he does it by twisting scripture. By twisting scripture. And this ultimately, this false teaching, if you follow it or if you teach it, you're not devoting yourself to the faith, but to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. That's what we see here again. Let me read verse four, chapter 4, verse 1 again. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, that is, sound doctrine of the gospel, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. The ultimate source of all false doctrine is the devil and his host, the demons. What does then Paul tell Timothy? Verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. In other words, if you warn the brothers about this false teaching, you will be a good servant of Jesus. Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Here's two more attributes of false teachers. False teachers are almost always irreverent. The way that they go about the way false teachers go about criticizing the true church and true ministers is by their own irreverence. If you see a man who is habitually irreverent, take care. That makes slight of others, that mocks others. And silly myths. So if Timothy is to be found a faithful trustee of the church, a faithful steward, a faithful minister, he must warn the church about false doctrine and he must be faithful with the gospel. Look at verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching 
Verse 15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Isn't that amazing? Now that's, that's a burden of responsibility right there. Verse 16, watch yourself and watch the teaching. Because by doing so, you will save yourself and your hearers. There is nothing more essential for a thriving church than for the minister to guard sound doctrine and the gospel and to be devoted to scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. That's why each week we read the scriptures publicly. It's why each week we give our exhortations from the scriptures, directly from it. So that I'm, we're not just popping up and saying, I feel like we should talk about eating a healthy diet this week. This week we're going to talk about five tips for a healthy marriage. Not that you can't ever give a topical message, but that the bread and butter of any thriving church, as God defines thriving, will be the exposition of scripture. Verse by verse, thought by thought, book by book. And my intention in this series has been to give you an overview of the whole so that then when we go through and we dive in in greater detail, you already have an idea of what the message of the Bible is and what the message of each book is. I want to be like Paul who can say, I have deli- I'm innocent of your blood, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And that should be the expectation of any minister in any church that seeks to be biblical, a true church. And I find, and I've, I've served in larger churches, I've served in much larger churches um, in the past. And one thing that I have noted in large churches, my experience is from the United States, um, but that in large churches, ministers end up becoming CEOs, like organizational leaders, and that the staff team actually, they move away from actually teaching to just helping other people teach. And I think it's kind of a, it's a false view of this multiplication idea, which is a good thing. We should multiply. We should make more teachers. But the people that have been trained to teach are actually now just people shufflers. And they're leading and organizing programs. And that ministers are so busy that the last thing they can do is devote themselves to scripture. And that the sermons get pushed late into the week. And in light of that pressure, and boards will, and elder boards will put that pressure on ministers as well, it's not surprising of how many plagiarism cases have surfaced in recent years. That men just start taking other people's work and teaching it and preaching it as their own because they don't have time to devote themselves to Scripture. And so this is why it's essential that we have 
elders, that we have deacons, that we have other people that can help do the work of ministry so that ministers like Timothy can devote themselves to studying and then teaching the word of God. It's essential for a healthy church. Let's just look, as we're still on this first point, on to be essential a thriving church, it's essential that we guard the gospel. Let's look at Paul's final instructions to Timothy at the end of the letter. Turn with me to chapter 6. To chapter 6. And we'll find ourselves down in uh, verse 2b. Teach and urge these things, Paul says. And again... We have the warning about false teaching. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion and constant friction among the people who are deprived in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Here's another telltale sign of a false teacher. What kind of fruit do they produce? Regardless of what their false or twisted teaching is, what's the fruit of their work? And here Paul shows us they are puffed up, they are proud and conceited, when they understand nothing. In other words, they claim to be experts of the word of God, but they're actually stupid and ignorant. We see that they are those that produce. Look at verse 4. They have an unhealthy, well, an unhealthy controversy, craving for controversy. There's always controversy surrounding these people. They're always quarreling about words. Trying to, they're trying to create their own and enforce their own doctrine by twisting certain words or phrases of Scripture to meet their ends. They're, they produce envy. They produce dissension and slander and suspicions and constant friction among the people. They are chronically difficult, divisive, dysfunctional. They have no idea how to keep the peace and submit to authorized teachers of the gospel. Is this how... Timothy should conduct himself by no means. So then what's Timothy's charge? Look down at verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Look down at verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. 
for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Brothers and sisters, we've seen now throughout this letter that if we're going to be a thriving church, it's essential that we guard the gospel and sound doctrine. It is essential. It's non-negotiable. No matter how entertaining we could be, no matter how great the music could be, no matter how wonderful the programs could be, we are nothing in God's sight if we don't guard the gospel and sound doctrine. And this idea of gospel and sound doctrine will be a theme in 2 Timothy, and it's going to be a theme in Titus as well. It's essential for the pastoral ministry that we guard sound doctrine. My own salvation depends on it. Your salvation depends on it. Again, remember chapter 4. It says, watch your life and doctrine closely, for by so doing, not only will you save yourself, but also your hearers. That's a scary, a scary thing to think about, that if we build incorrectly, your salvation could be at stake. So we've seen now, to be an essential, a thriving church, it's essential that we guard sound doctrine. Let's now look at the second and final point which is to be a thriving church, it's essential that we guard godliness. To be a thriving church, it's essential that we guard godliness. Here now, we're going to turn to your role. What's the church's role in protecting godliness? Let's look at this together. Let's begin in chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to look at the parts, uh, the, now the two mountain peaks. Remember, we had this mountain peak kind of range. We have Timothy, the church, Timothy, the church, and Timothy. We're going to look at the two mountain peaks of the structure where the church is in focus. So let's begin in chapter 2. While we, uh, while we look here in chapter 2, you again can look at your outline in the worship folder that Paul's focus here for the church, he gives rules for men and women in corporate gatherings and the rules for church officer qualifications. And then he ends this section with the mystery of godliness. That is how people should behave in the household of God. We see in chapter 2, and we don't have time to, to fully exposit this section, of course, this morning, but we'll look at it in brief, that the first thing that Paul expects the church to do is to pray. I don't know, that maybe wasn't the first thing I would expect Paul to say when he's thinking about what should the church do. Maybe he'll say, serve one another or love one another. It's interesting to me that the first thing that he says is pray, and not just uh, any kind of prayer, but pray for all people. And he goes on to mention kings and all who are in positions of high authority. Verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Who desires all people to be saved. And I think this means all kinds of people. You know, the Jews were convinced that God would just save the Jews. Right? A lot of the false teaching in the New Testament is if you really want to be saved, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but you must become Jewish. 
and it cuts off that essential glorious truth of the gospel that Jesus came to save people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And he didn't just come to save the poor. He came to save rich people too. He didn't just come to save the middle class. He came to save people from every walk of life and in every corner of the globe. And that we should pray for all these people. In verse 7, that's why Paul was appointed a preacher and apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So if we want to be a thriving church, a godly church, if we want to thrive and grow in godliness, we must be a praying church. It's interesting to me also, of course, in, in Ephesians, so Paul's written a letter to Ephesians, Timothy's now serving in the Ephesian church. We, of course, know that in the letter of Ephesians, Paul concludes the call to the spiritual battle to put on the full armor of God with praying at all times. Praying for all people at all times. It's interesting that that shows up here again as the number one characteristic of godliness in the church. Are we a praying church? Do we pray at home and do we pray together? That's why we've placed such an emphasis even on our Wednesday gathering We must be a praying church. That's essential for the spiritual battle that we're all called to wage as the church militant. More than that, down in verse 8, then Paul gives some rules for men. That men should pray, lifting holy hands, without anger or quarreling. And here we see that even if we're not a charismatic church, you can raise your hands if you sing, (laughs) if you pray. You may do that. Lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Here's another little shot at false teachers who love to produce quarreling. And then there's also the rules for women in terms of dress modestly. Dress, if you're going to be a godly woman, dress modestly. Respectable apparel. And to learn quietly with all submissiveness. For I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And here, Paul points, uh, grounds this rule in the garden. For Adam, verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Uh, We're not deeply exposing this section, but I think this is an interesting term and a phrase, she'll be saved through childbearing. I think what Paul is pointing to is that a godly woman, someone who is is saved, who continues in faith and love and holiness, is someone that joyfully does their God-given duty of being the mother, for married women, of being a mother of doing your duty, of bearing children, of learning, and so forth. So there's rules for men and for women in the household of God. Rules for godliness. We pray. We should do so without quarreling. We should do so submissively and appropriately within the household of God. In chapter 3, then, we get rules for overseers of the church. 
And we can't look at all of these this morning, but we'll look at few. We, we have two main offices in the church. You have overseers, another word, elders or pastors. And then the other uh, office is deacons. They're servants of the church. And we see a whole list of godly characteristics that must be there before a man can be uh, considered for the office of overseer, above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And again, the church is just a spiritual manifestation of what we actually see in our own households, where men should be leading wisely. But if a man cannot do that, how then can he manage God's family, the household of God? He must not be a recent convert, verse 6, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. That is such a characteristic of young men who finally discover theology, that they become puffed up. And that's why they shouldn't be recent converts, or they might fall into the conceit and condemnation of the devil. More so, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. That is, an overseer should also have a good rapport outside the church. Say, for example, in his workplace, he should be known as a hard worker and a diligent worker. Uh, Likewise with deacons, we see very similar kinds of qualifications. For example, verse 12, let the deacons be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Deacons uh, are often the ones entrusted with the money of the church. And so they they must prove themselves as good managers at home before they can manage the resources and the property of the church. In fact, we see in Acts 6 where the first deacons are appointed. They're entrusted with the funds to take care of the Greek widows who were being neglected in the church. So deacons, the, the, the little word for deacon is one who waits at table. So when you go to a restaurant, that person's a deacon. They're waiting at table, but the deacons uh, hold a high and holy office to serve the needs of the church. And it's essential. But they must display godliness and the ability before they can be entrusted with managing God's house. Paul ties all this together in verse 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So here is this theme of house. How one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. 
And I just want to give you one thing to think about, uh, as we can't expound this as deeply as I would love to this morning because of time, but that here we see the marriage of doctrine and living and life. That not only is Timothy entrusted and the church entrusted with sound doctrine, but Paul actually calls the sound doctrine that we see in verse 16 the mystery of godliness. That there's actually a life that accords with the truth. That actually manifests, it actually manifests the true church. Because you have a church proclaiming one thing and living another way. Or you have a minister proclaiming one thing and then bearing all the attributes of these false teachers. That's a clear sign that they're not a trustee of the gospel. So the gospel and godliness are inseparable. Those things go together. They go together. And that's why it's essential that men and women behave appropriately in the church, as Paul gives rules for that, and that officers meet the right qualifications for managing the household of God. This purpose statement is profound in verse 15. It's, it's the whole book right here in a nutshell. If I am writing the verse, end of verse 14, but I'm writing these things to you so that, verse 15, if I delay, you may know how one, a person, ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Our lifestyles are not irrelevant add-ons to the faith. They're essential. Godliness is essential. Uh, likewise, uh, in the other mountain peak of Timothy, chapter 5, we see further instructions for how to care for widows, rules for widows, uh, rules for elders, and rules for slaves in the church. Uh, also, the, it starts with rules concerning age and gender. How should we treat each other based on age and gender, and Timothy specifically as he disciples them. And uh, we won't go any deeper on that, but again, a major focus on how we behave in the church. Let's end in this section on guarding godliness by looking again at Timothy in brief. What did Paul tell Timothy on this score? And I'm just going to give you a few points as we run out of time this morning. Look at chapter 1. Verse 16, again, where Paul's describing himself, he reminds Timothy that he received mercy so that he could be an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Paul was saved so that he could be an example for others to imitate. Right? We've seen this in many of Paul's letters, imitate me, follow me as I follow Christ. In Paul's charge to the Ephesian elders that now Timothy is working with, he reminded them of his lifestyle, his hard work, how he sacrificed for their well-being and charged them to follow his example. And then here in verse 18, he tells Timothy to do the same. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. So now he's handing on the gospel and the model of godliness to Timothy. You must show these things to the people. 
Look also in chapter 4. Turn, with, turn to chapter 4 with me, where Paul gives more instructions to Timothy. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. Timothy, you should be as vigorous as these Norwegians training for the Winter Olympics. As these Norwegians training for the Winter Olympics. I don't know if I've shared this illustration, but Deborah drove myself and a, and a longtime friend of mine a few years ago up into the mountains so that we could do a seven-day canoe trip through the mountains. And as we're going up this windy curve, there's this team of women. I've never seen women this strong in my life who are doing the, I don't know what you call it, but like the... It's like the roller skating, but like the cross-country ski thing, whatever that's called. And they're just like, just flying up these steep grades. I mean, it is impressive. Could you imagine what this nation would be like if it devoted itself to God like it does to sports? And Timothy, and Paul's going to make this comparison to bodily training. To Timothy, he says, train yourself for godliness. And then verse 8, for while bodily training, skiing up those mountains or whatever they did in Ephesus, for while bodily training is of some value, so it's good, it's good, bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So if you're a smart person, you're not just going to devote yourself to sleep, to diet, and physical exercise but your main drive will be godliness. Godliness. Because it holds promise not just for this life, but for the one to come. That gold medal is going to burn like everything else. But if you devote yourself to godliness, it's not just your 15 minutes of fame on the podium. You enjoy the fruits of godliness for all eternity. And again, verse 16, that's why Paul charges Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself, so on your godliness and on the teaching, on your doctrine, persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. And then lastly, in chapter 6, Paul's final words to Timothy, again on the score of godliness. We see in chapter 6, verse 6, for example, where Paul tells Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. You know, we all have places we want to be, things we want to do, and at least the driven among us never feel quite content with what we have. And we need to be reminded, like Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. God's put you in the position he's placed you in for a reason, And he's not expecting you to change it, but he is calling you to a life of godliness. And that you can do, irregardless, irrespective of the situation that you're in. Look also at verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And then finally, verse 20, 
O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Again, Paul marries the doctrine, gospel, with godliness. Avoid irreverent babble. Don't be one that's drug into silly myths and silly quarrels. Defend the faith. Wage the good warfare. Set an example for the believers that all may see your progress. So brothers and sisters, as we're young in this, the growth and the history of this church, if we want to see First Presbyterian thrive, it's essential that we guard the gospel and that we practice and promote godliness in the church. It's essential. It's mission critical. And whatever the world thinks of us, whatever we think, however fruitful or fruitless we think we are, God will be well pleased with us, whether we're 30 people or 200 people. God will be well pleased with us if we can look the Lord in the eyes on the day of judgment and to say, we didn't do it perfectly, but we did our utmost for the gospel. And we did our utmost to set an example of godliness in the church. Then I think God will look at each one of us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. So this is the trust that's given to the minister of any church the elder of any church, but it's also the trust given to every church member that we guard the gospel and godliness. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for these precious letters written to young ministers in the first century of the church and the precious truths contained, the warnings and the encouragement, warnings against false teaching and teachers. We are grieved that we are plagued by that in every age, and the same is true today. But I pray that as a church, as the church militant, the church on earth, that we together as minister and congregation would wage the good warfare, that we would fight the good fight, that we would guard the deposit of the gospel and the biblical definition of godliness. While we will always do it imperfectly, we ask for your grace over our faults, and we ask for your power to allow us to zealously persevere in these essential needs for the church. I pray that First Presbyterian would always thrive as long as we do our duty to guard the gospel and godliness. In Christ our Lord we pray, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, let's remind ourselves that the glory is not ours, but the Lord's. Let's sing Psalm 115a together. Psalm 115a, and let's stand together. As we sing,
I think of a different verse than referenced here, but Paul talking about how he worked harder than any of the other disciples. But he said, though not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The ultimate glory belongs to the Lord. Not unto us, Lord, no, not us, but to your name above. Bring glory for your faithfulness and for your steadfast love. Da, 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 da. Not unto us, Lord, no, not us, but to your name above. Bring glory for your faithfulness and for your steadfast love. Why should the heathen nations say, why does their God keep still? For our God lives in heaven high and carries out his will. Of gold and silver are their gods, which men craft carefully. And give them mouths that cannot speak and eyes that cannot see. Though they have ears, they cannot hear, their nose no scent has found. Their hands can feel, their feet can walk, their throats can make no sound. Whoever makes these lifeless gods, these idols which are vain, Whoever puts his trust in them in time becomes the same. Please receive the benediction from 1 Timothy chapter 6. To him who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.